know, this morning, uh, Ryan Carter is going to be our last. Ryan was with us in the choir this year. He and Ryan Mitchell and Ryan Justin. And I appreciate those guys and their contribution while they've been home from uh, from school. They've, uh, as you recall, we had trouble doing our music for Christmas because of the strength of the choir. And it's an interesting that both, both the confidence these fellas added and the encouragement they added to help us do a little bit better. And I appreciate very much their help. And Ryan will be heading back to school today. And uh, Ryan and Justin Mitchell are already there by now, as Dixie and Jim are with them. So I just appreciate uh, all our young people of our church coming home and helping us every way they can and appreciate this very much all of them get here and they've all been an encouragement in one way or the other over the holiday season and i i so very much appreciate all of our our college young people and uh, grateful for their contribution they make to our church if your bible's open romans chapter one i call your attention to verse number 11 romans chapter one and verse number 11 paul's writing is he starts out these introductory verses of this great book this is the constitution of our faith And he says in verse number 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Ted Koppel some time ago said, I quote, Consider this paradox. Almost everything that is publicly said these days is recorded, and almost nothing of what is said is worth remembering. End of quote. I personally agree with the guy. It is when we forget ourselves that we do those things that are really actually worth remembering. It's not like the little boy who visited the church for the very, very first time. And I was told this story years ago as a fact. Whether it is or not, I do not know. But this young fellow was sitting in a church for the very first time, and he noticed this group of men who was going down the aisles and handing these plates and passing them in front of these people. And as they came down to the row next to him, and he saw his father taking his billfold out, the little boy turned to his father and said in such a loud tone of voice, Dad, you don't have to pay for me. I'm five years old. I guess that's one way to look at the offerings for the Sunday morning services. But uh, that's uh, something that this church pastor remembered, and he shared that with a group of pastors and told us, well, there's some things in our text that I believe Paul the Apostle wants you and me to remember, some things that I don't think you all forget, nor I. And I must tell you, when I began to study this entire section, these verses of today have stuck with me more closely than the others, and I think that it's because I believe the Holy Spirit of the Lord wants us to remember them succinctly and distinctively. I called your attention to these because they're very personal with Paul. In the context, you'll see how he personally addresses I and I and I and I over again. It's very personal, and you can get the feel of that through this entire text, even back as far back as when he started in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ and so forth, even that far, and making mention of him in verse 9, I make mention of you, I serve with my spirit. All these things indicate this is a very personal passage for Paul, and I remind you of why he did that. 
The reason is because he has never met the Roman Christians. As far as the records of Scripture are concerned, he has not been to Rome. He knows not these people unless he met them in Jerusalem at some point, and that's not likely. And so he doesn't know these people. And one of the first things that is important, if somebody's going to listen to you preach or you teach, is they need to know something about you that they can trust that the messenger is going to be true to the message. He's not just going to uh, get up and talk and then he's going to be somebody else when he gets out of the pulpit. But this guy's real. He's genuine. He's what you, what you see is what you get. And so Paul the Apostle is rather establishing something from which to speak as a person of character and person with integrity and honesty toward them. So I call your attention to that because it's important as he lays the groundwork. There are four points to the outline that will cover these verses. And for those of you who know about preaching, I will not get to two of them today. We'll cover two next Sunday, so don't get scared and think you're going to miss lunch by the time I take on the first point and think, well, man, at this rate, we'll be here till 2.30. We may be here till 2.30, but we're still just covering two points. I don't want you to know that. But back at verse number 11, I call your attention to the first one, and that is, and keep this in mind, the Christian affection. Christian affection. We don't talk a lot about affection. That's not something that we as church people tend to do. But let me call your attention to it in the context of how Paul relates to it. The Christian's affection. In verse 1 or verse 11, you see, he says, For I long to see you. You ought to underline the word long there because that's a, a Greek word that means to yearn for, to have an intensity of craving for. Someone translates it in another translation, which the whole of the translation I would not go for, but I think they get close to what Paul means here when they write. He says, I'm homesick to see you. I'm homesick to see you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been homesick? Have you ever been homesick? Let me tell you. When I was out of high school, and, uh, and I had prayed about it, and God had certainly directed my steps to go at that time to Tennessee Temple in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I lived in Middle Tennessee and was going to my my uh, friends and I from our church, Brother Charles Dykus, who is now my brother-in-law, and Brother Wayne Haston, who is now a director of media ministry with ABWE. Uh, Wayne and Charles and I, from the same church, called to preach about the same time, all went off to Tennessee Temple at the same time, and very frankly, in the same car on the same day. The fact of the matter is, that was the first time I had ever been away from home in my life. Uh, from Chattanooga or from Sparta, Tennessee over to Chattanooga, Tennessee is some of the prettiest country you will ever see. You will pass through, uh, you will have to pass through uh, Fall Creek Falls State Park when you go down. When you get through Fall Creek Falls, you get to Spencer Mountain, some of the prettiest mountains in the state of Tennessee. When you pass through Spencer, Tennessee, or Spencer Mountain through Spencer, Tennessee, you get down into a section of, uh, of a long stretch of highway straight as an arrow called Sasquatchie Valley, Indian name, and it's a long road. I mean, it's just straight as an arrow. Uh, when I was in school, that was a drag racing strip at 3.30 on Saturday mornings. But the fact is, straightest strip of road you'll ever see, and it runs the length of Sequatchie Valley from a little shy of Lookout, or excuse me, Signal Mountain, all the way back up to Crossville, Tennessee, and to Cumberland Mountains. I mean, it's a stretch of road like unbelievable. You get into Sequatchie Valley, and then you start going on the other side. When you look to the right, and you're riding down this straight highway, you'll notice bluffs. And most of those who know anything about the universal flood noticed that years ago they studied those bluff lines and they found salt deposits in those bluff lines. And they're the, called the Sequatchie uh, Valley Salt Deposits was the papers that were written about them. And you can look over and you can see it does look like a watermark all along the highway there. Beautiful mountainous look. Then you begin to climb 
you begin to go up on what's called Signal Mountain. And you get up on that mountain, that thing turns and winds and all this. Then you get from Signal Mountain, you get all the way over to a place, Lookout Point. Then you start going down into Chattanooga. Beautiful. I'm telling you, it's breathtaking. When you come off of, of, of Signal Mountain into Chattanooga Valley where Chattanooga sits, I'm telling you, you'll take your breath away for several reasons. Because at the time I rode, there was no banisters along the roadway. And it was down about 500 straight feet. That's the first time it'll take your breath away. But the other thing, it's beautiful. Beautiful valley. I tell you all that to tell you this. I didn't see any of that my first trip. I was lying in the back seat, sicker than a dog, homesick. All I could think about, I'm leaving my, my freedom of going fishing anytime I want to go fishing. I'm, I'm leaving my freedoms to go, go salamander hunting in the, you know, down in the swamp. I'm leaving my privileges going swimming in the swamp lakes. I'm, I'm leaving all these privileges and what I'm going to do is put myself in a dorm room for God only knows how long it'll take me to get through. And man, was I sick. And then I thought about leaving my mom, my dad, my brothers. I thought, my brother, my si- uh, this is not going to work. And I worked myself into sickness. And I lay in the back seat of that car while we made that two-hour journey to Chattanooga. And I didn't see any of that the first trip over there. It took several trips back and forth to finally get to see the beauty of all that. But the point was, I was so homesick, it wasn't even funny. There's a realness to that. There's an intensity in that. And that's the words that some have used in the translation. These words, I long to see you. It's that intense. By the way, we can tell the intensity because when you move back up to verse number 10, Paul was saying to this same group of people, he said in verse 10, chapter 1, making mention or making request, if by any means at length I might have prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. You see the intensity with which Paul wants to come to see these people? He wants to see them so bad that this is what he did. Understand the text. He said, Lord, I'm going to write out this check. I'm going I'm to sign this check. And I want you to fill in the amount of what it's going to cost me to get to see these believers at Rome. You see what he said? He said, by any means. You know what that translates into our language? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. I'm willing to pay the price to get to see the folks at Rome. That's how much he wanted to see them. Man alive, did you know if every believer who's a member of the New Life Baptist Church had that kind of intensity about coming to see us on Sunday morning, we wouldn't have an empty pew on Sunday morning except the folks who are sick, dead, or dying. If they weren't sick, dead, or dying, they'd all be here. Every service, if we had that intensity to come together like Paul was trying to see the believers at Rome. I wish that we had it. The fact is that this kind of attitude reflects a true Christian love that Paul had for believers everywhere he met them. In fact, some he had not met. He had this same kind of attitude. The foremost Christian characteristic, the Christian or genuine love as we would call it, is a selfless giving of oneself and whatever one has. Let me call your attention to what Paul wrote. Listen to this. This comes over in a passage in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, notice this if you would, in chapter number 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 7, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, but we were gentle among you even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel only, but also our own souls because ye were dear unto us. Verse number 9, he says, for ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, For laboring night and day, because we would not 
be chargeable unto you or any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. That's almost the same things he's saying about the church over here in Rome and the believers there when it's interesting here that he tells us that he had desired to see them. He longed to see them. His soul was literally taxed to see them. I mean, this guy had a real heartfelt love for these believers. And interesting enough, he says, I labored day and night. Why did you do that, Paul? So I wouldn't be a burden to you folks. I loved you and cared for you, but it wasn't because I got to get something out of you. He said, I did all this to prevent you from being burdened with my presence. Let me tell you something. That's an interesting concept, and that's why I label this this section the Christian affection. There's a, a, a principle that runs through all of what Paul is saying here, and I think it's very, very clear. Real Christ-like love thinks of the loved one before it thinks of self. That's really what he's saying. He's not thinking so much of these brethren and what you can do for me and what I can get out of you. He's saying, look, I care for you and I love you and I, I won't, I, I'll do anything in the world to be of help to you. I love you so much. Let me tell you, my, my friend, that's Christian affection. And the biblical concept of that is what Paul said over in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 15. Here's what he said. He said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. That's amazing. Here Paul's saying to a group of Corinthians who were not your best kept secret of dedicated believers. I mean, the Corinthian church had a multitude of problems. And yet he said of these people, I would be willing to be spent and spend for your sakes because I care that deeply for you. Now listen to me. That's an important and, and, and I think impressive and noble thing to say. But the truth is that we may have husbands and wives in this auditorium this morning who would not say that to each other. I mean, if a husband turned to his wife and said, I would be willing to be spent and spend for you. Now, women don't take that too literal and talk about credit cards and checks and all that kind of That's not what he's talking about here. That's a false translation. The the ideal is here, I would take whatever it takes of myself, give of myself in whatever capacity, to whatever degree, to make sure your needs are met. That's my primary interest. That's what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church husband to wife. Whatever it takes to meet your need, that's what I'm willing to do. Tell me, show me, explain that to me. Men are typically a little hard-headed when it comes to those kind of understanding truths. You know, we catch on to how to put a lug note on a, on a tire, but man, to, to catch on to a woman's need, that's another matter altogether. That's not something we quickly come to the surface on. We have to be told. And that demands communication and talking and sharing. And the more that you talk and the more you understand one another, the more you understand how to meet their needs. And I'm telling you that Christian affection says to the other person, look, forget my needs at the moment. What are your needs? What can I do to help you? What can I do to be a blessing to you? What can I do to make you more fulfilled in who you are? And I'm telling you, that's what Paul said to the church at Rome. I'm saying that he said it to these believers. I care enough about you to forget myself. And let me tell you something. That's doing something. When you care so much for somebody else that your care for them so supersedes your care for yourself that it's almost like it, you have no care, you have no concern, you have no interest. You ever have been so burdened that you did not feel like eating? Did anything ever come into your life that so scared you, that so upset you, that so distraught you that food was the farthest thing from your mind? I can tell you an event. And I do not do this to badger memories or whatever, but when Dan and Judy's father passed away and we got that phone call in the early morning hours, 
I remember going up there, and I, of course I never eat breakfast. That's not something on the agenda. I, I do drink a cup of coffee and go to my office, have my devotions and so forth, and that's about the extent of whatever nutrients I might get. And I remember going up there that morning, and I remember going in, and I remember meeting and comforting and talking and sharing with Mrs. Carter for a few moments. And then I remember making contacts with Daniel and, the, and um, Jan, the, uh, the other sister, and so forth. I remember doing all those things. And, and I was thinking in all the terms of what do we need to do to take care of this. What are, we, what are all the things that have to be done in this circumstance? And I remember going through every one of them. I remember step by step when, when Mrs. Carter said, well, this needs to be done, we need to take care of that. And then Dan comes and we begin to formulate what Jan got there. And all the plans begin. There was one thing that seemed to be missing in all of it. Nobody said anything about getting hungry. Nobody said anything about let's go eat. Nobody said, let's, we got to take care of food. I mean, somebody's got to go get some food. Good grief. Uh, we eat around here. Let's go eat. Nobody said anything about that. The fact of the matter is, nobody ate as far as I know until the end of the day. It was a Wednesday. And I remember when all of that was done and it was come to the end of the time and we had to get back to the services here at the church. We left. We came down Madison Avenue and the McDonald's there before it was remodeled. We pulled in there and I got one pack of fries. I ate that pack of fries. I walked into the house on Dunn Street and the moment I walked in the door from having eaten just a pack of salty fries, I fell on the floor there and was so sick I could not get to the, to the chair. And then I got to the, the bathroom and laid my head, excuse me, over in the commode and stayed there while my wife came to the services that night and the services were carried on. I've never been so sick in my life. I thought, if death is it, and by the way, I was so sick I couldn't even get to my will. Now, you know that's bad, man. When I get sick, I get my will out and we rework that thing. But I was so sick I didn't think about a will. I was thinking about just getting through the moment. How did all that happen? Well, I believe because I hadn't eaten anything all day. I think because of all that was on my mind, my heart, and food was not the most important thing. You, my friend, I am certain, have gone through a circumstance in your life where you got so bothered, so distraught, so upset, so concerned that something that most people would think absolutely essential for a moment to you was absolutely unimportant. It just wasn't on the list. It just wasn't there. And I'm saying to you that when you can get to a point where you care about someone else so much that you literally can forget yourself, you're beginning to get the concept of how Paul felt about these people. Not only the husband and wives in this room who'd say, hey, look, I'd, be, I'd spend and be spent for you. I'd do whatever it takes. There ought to be some young people in this room who'd look to their parents and say the same thing. Whatever it takes for you. I'm living at home. You're taking care of my needs and you're just watching over me, do so many things for me. I want you to know, Mom and Dad, I'd, I'd spend and be spent for you in any way I can to make your life more what would be fulfilling to you. You see, it's something about this. We're all selfish by nature and don't you ever forget that. I don't care how much you grow in grace in Christ. The fact of the matter is you are selfish by nature. And the tendency is, is to look out for self and for number one in your interest. And I'm telling you what Paul is saying in this text of Scripture is basically we have to grow up and have to grow out of that old creature mentality. Now I want you to see something out of the text that's very, very important. Look at verse number 11 where I just read, For I long to see you. Now stop there. And understanding what Paul is saying here, this is Paul's longing for the believers, his love for them, and his love to express to them and show them and to, to, as it were, interchange. I want you to know what it follows on the heels of. Verse 11 follows on the heels of verses 9 and 10. You see, in verse number 9 and 10, he has said, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. 
Paul's talking about his prayer life now. And he says, I always, constantly, continuously, you're on my mind because you're on my heart. And I pray for you. I pray constantly for you. Look at verse number 10. Making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God. And he's praying that God would give him a good journey so he could get to Rome. For what reason? So he can see these believers. Verse number 10. My point about that is to say this. Paul's genuine love for these people, I am confident, grew out of a genuine prayer life. And I mean genuine praying, for instance, has a way. Listen to me. Genuine praying, Bible praying, has a way of dispersing self-centeredness and selfishness. It's awfully hard to be selfish and to pray for a lot of people. You know that? Now, I've walked you into a blind curve. You just walked into a corner. Many of you shook your head. You agree. And I believe you meant it. Wednesday night, we have a motivator here at the church. That's what we call it. We call it the midweek motivator. Midweek motivator just simply lists the services of Sunday, and on the inside, it lists all the prayer requests that have turned into the New Life Baptist Church, both of people who need to be saved, people who have special needs, our missionaries, our students who are away from school, and we put them all in there. So every week, you have a prayer list that you could take home and learn. Now, here's the key. This last week, there were nine added requests that I counted, 15 missionary requests, plus three special requests that were two recorded in the bulletin, our motivator, and one that I gave publicly. There were nine college students. There were 53 listed for salvation, 68 for special needs. That's a grand total of 157 requests that somehow, some way, had been turned into the New Life Baptist Church to pray for. Let me ask you a simple question. Did you pray for one person on that list between Wednesday and today? You don't have to answer me publicly. But you'll answer to the Lord about it. If you say, Pastor, I I really didn't. I I haven't had time, man. I've been so busy. No, 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 no. You aren't too busy. You'll forgive me, but you're selfish. You're selfish. If, you're, if your head had your name listed on there and you had a serious problem and you called the New Life Baptist Church or you sent word by some member of our fellowship and you said, hey, please, i got a burden, i got a care, i got a concern, please pray for me, uh, you, 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 you take that for an excuse, wouldn't you? Some guy looked you square in the face and said, I heard about your request, but I didn't have time to pray for you. i got a thousand things I need to take care of, but I didn't have time to pray for you. No, my friend, it's not being too busy, it's being too selfish. And until we learn that, we're never going to grow much in our Christian life, at least in our prayer life. Praying is indicative that you're dependent on a holy God of heaven and understanding that other people are depending on you. And they want you, they need you to pray for them. And when they ask, please pray for us, please tell your church to pray, you think they're just moving their lips and they they have no interest in that? There are folks who call this church with their hearts broken, tears streaming their faces, and their voices are cracking. And they're saying, please ask your church to pray for these requests. And when we step back and say, we're just too busy, man. We don't have time to pray for those. Grief, give me a break. There's 157 requests. Okay, just pick one. Just pick one. Just take out one name and say, for God's sake, work in this situation. Save this guy. Heal these people. Work in their life. But don't sit back and tell me you're too busy. Do whatever you want, but just don't tell me that. But raise your hand toward heaven and say, I'm just selfish. Man, I I prayed for other things. I prayed for my, my, my offering, my money, my car, my house, my home, my family, my kids, my whatever. I prayed for all that, but I don't have time to pray for you. That's just selfish, my beloved. 
And until we face our sin, we'll never deal with it appropriately. And I'm telling you, that's what Paul comes out of here. He's come out of his prayer life, and no wonder he's so excited and so burdened and so concerned about these people. You won't spend time in prayer and still be a real selfish person. Fact of the matter, you can do it this way. You show me a selfish person, and I'll show you a person who's prayerless. They don't spend time in prayer. You can't pray and seek God's face and then come out and be me, 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 me oriented. It doesn't work that way. You spend time in the presence of the Holy Heavenly Father and you'll come out thanking God for all the mercy He's bestowed upon you, all the grace He's given you, all the provisions He's given, and one thing will stand out above all other. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. He's been so kind and He's taken care of me and He's blessed us and I don't deserve it. And the first thing you'll do is turn your attention on other people and say, boy, I need to pray for someone so they have a need and someone else over here has a need and someone over here has a need. And oh, I'm telling you, people who are praying are not selfish and people who are praying look for people to pray for and to stand with and that's the context of this. I note something else and this is an important thing. Paul loved these people. And he loved them just like I'd trust every pastor would love his people. And I, I've said it to you before. I love the New Life Baptist Church people. But I didn't come in here doing that. I think it's just like any kind of circumstance. There's a growing in it. And I grow to love people and grew to love the New Life Baptist Church family and pray for them the way I would my family and stand with them and seek what I can do for them. And that's why a story of a pastor so speaks to my heart. It's the story of John Fawcett. You, I'm sure, know the story. If you don't listen carefully, John Fawcett was a pastor in a, in a small Baptist church in Waynesgate, England, for many years. He was a, he was a young preacher. He was, he was orphaned at the age of 12. He was um, saved and called to preach. In fact, he was ordained by the age of 25. And he moved to this particular church. He pastored there for seven years, served this church faithfully. It grew to about 100 and seemed like it could never go any further. And then what happened was, came to a matter where he got an invitation to a large prestigious church this church called him and said we've heard about the work you're doing out there and we'd we'd like for you to come and be our pastor and so he thought about it and as he thought about it he he began to, to decide yes this is what i'll do I, it's a prestigious church it's an opportunity it's a much larger church I, I believe this is what the lord would have me do and so the story goes he said that the pastor began to load up his possessions in the last possessions the story says he loaded up on his cart as he began to say his goodbyes to the members of his fellowship tearfully he bade them farewell one by one and he said to those who had loved him for the past seven years who had looked over his faults and his failures who'd encouraged him when he needed it who prayed for him when he didn't know it and for those who worked with him in labors for Christ to reach men, women, boys, and girls with the gospel and to maintain a high standard of Bible doctrine teaching, they returned the tears that he shed, and they also returned his love. It was simply too much for the young preacher. London would have to wait. He ordered his cart unloaded, and he stayed at Waynesgate, England for the rest of his life. He died there. 54 years later. What's exciting about that is he's the man who wrote this song and he wrote it after this event. Blessed be the tie that binds a heart in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one.
our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and in hope to meet again. I'm saying to you that that's the kind of attitude and the kind of spirit that the Apostle Paul had about the people at Rome. I'd go a step further. I believe that's the kind of affection that you and I ought to have one for another. I believe that's the kind of love and the concern we ought to have as fellow church members. And I believe that the Apostle Paul sets the standard of Christian affection. I move to a second thing quickly, and we close with this one. It's not as long, but equally as important. Not only a Christian affection, but I want you to see the Christian aim, A-I-M. You see in verse number 11, For I long to see you, here's his aim. That, By the way, that first part is his affection. Here's his aim, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. Paul reflects the characteristic of a, of a true Christian here by saying that he longed to see them, but he longed to see them not for what he could get out of them. You know, a husband doesn't love his wife, so what he can get out of her. You know, he, he's not nice to her one day, so he can get certain pleasures and benefits from her. He's, he's kind to her because he loves her and he cares about her. Paul's the same way in regard to the Christian church here at Rome. He's saying, I, I care for you, and it's not because of what you can do for me, but I care for you because I want to impart something to you. I want to give something to you. I want to have an impact on your life. And in verse number 11, he talks about he wants to impart unto them some spiritual gift. And I say to you that this, first of all, is not the gift of salvation. He's talking to Christians here. And these people have already received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So he's not talking about he, he impart salvation here. That's not what the spiritual gift is. By the way, if you're here this morning and there's never been a time in your life where you invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and you believed on Him and His finished work of the cross, where He died on the cross for you, then I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a free gift. It is free, it is forever, and it is for you. It's for me. It's for everybody, anybody. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is simply a matter of saying Christ paid the price. He paid all that is due to the Father. And the Father then is extending salvation to you and I on the basis of the finished work of Christ. And this morning, my friend, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, it's a free gift and it's for you and it's forever. And He'd love for you to partake of it. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. But as many as received Him. How do you do that? Because it's a gift. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ as it were. A gift of salvation that He provides. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believed on His name. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, I'm saying to you there's a gift waiting for you. It is the gift, free gift, forever gift. Of salvation, But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Neither is he talking about the gifts of the Spirit. When Paul comes over in Romans chapter, what is it, chapter 12, I believe, when we get over there in the next millennium, when we get to that passage of Scripture, you'll notice that that explanation and the interpretation Paul gives, he'll explain all that about the gifts of the Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul knew well that the gifts of the Spirit are delivered to directly to the individual believer by the Holy Spirit.
Spirit. And Paul the Apostle does not carry around in his pocket and hand them out like candy. That's not how you get the spiritual gifts. They're given by the Holy Spirit directly to the individual. Then the question is obvious. What is it he's talking about when he talks about these spiritual gifts? I personally believe what Paul means here is the general spiritual helps that the Holy Spirit produces in a believer when he is obedient to the Word of God. That's what it is. And I believe what Paul is going to do, he's going to go preach to these Romans. And he's saying, Paul's part is that I may impart faithful teaching, preaching of God's Word. Now listen to me. God's part is ye may be established. Get it? You see in verse number 11, there's two parts. He says that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now notice the phrase, to the end ye may be established. That's written in a passive voice. These people, Paul the Apostle is not going to do this to them. All he's going to do is preach the gospel, preach the truth, preach doctrine. And what's going to happen? God is going to step in and do the establishing. I can't establish you, but I can be faithful to preach the Word of God. I can be faithful to rightly interpret the Scriptures. And God's Holy Spirit can be faithful then to establish you in the truth. And the fact of the matter is, that's exactly the process that takes place. God can work His Word into and through your life to establish you. question would rise, why do we need to be established? Why does anybody in the Christian life need to be established? I don't really care about that far of being that spiritual to be established. Let me explain to you, my friend, something. First off, you need to understand that none of us, nobody, came into this world spiritually alive. We came here lost. We were born in nurseries lost. And I'm going to say to you that the longer that you remain in that ungodly, Christless position, the more that you remain in that, in this present evil world, and it gets into your head and it gets into your heart, the harder you become against the things of God the more harsh you are as a person. And consequently, you'll even find it so that even believers, save for a time, still have a fleshly fight to stay and to stand for Christ. I was uh, reading this week uh, uh, the words of a song that I have uh, long appreciated. This song in our songbook, my wife uh, plays this song beautifully, and I enjoy her playing it at home when she practices, and then she plays it here at church sometime. Here's the, the song. It says, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Do you understand that tuning something is like uh, tuning the piano? Uh, sometimes the, a piano gets out of tune. And you have to have some guy come in here and tune that thing to get it back to where it needs to be so that we can enjoy the music. Very simply done. The fact of the matter is that every person who is born in this world is born out of tune with God. You're out of tune. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, there's never been a time in your life where you repented of your sin and believed on Christ as your Savior, I'm telling you, you and God are out of tune. And God's saying you're not going to be able to make any beautiful music in your life until you get in tune. So he writes, Tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. And by the way, you don't realize all those streams of mercy until you come to faith in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, you'll look back over your life 
as in mine. When I was a kid, I'm telling you, there wasn't anything that anybody could say, I dare you to do, that I wouldn't attempt. I would not want my boys to have done that for anything in the world. I can remember taking Shetland ponies. You know, if you've ever been around a Shetland pony, meanest, sorriest, low-downedest animal that ever God ever created is a Shetland pony. And they look so cute, and people say, oh, aren't they cute? They'll bite you in a heartbeat. Not only will they bite you, they'll kick you in a heartbeat. A Shetland pony has this, and you know, you ever met somebody short and has this attitude? You remember? Shetland pony. Now I'm telling you, Shetland pony. And uh, this neighbor had Shetland ponies, and he said, we got to break these. We brought them in from some place out in the east, and they don't ride them out there. They just produce them, and they send them down here to break. It's no biggie. I've ride horses before. So we get these Shetland ponies in this corral, and uh, we did the old sandbag trick. There's a couple of them. You know, you can either take them out in a pond, which you can get drowned in, by the way, you know, but what you do is you get a, a, a Shetland out in a, a wading out about chest deep in the water so he can't buck and kick and all that stuff, and you just stand there with him, you know, and then you start trying to control him with the bits and that kind of business. Well, anyway, we put sand on the horn of the saddle, you know, put about, oh, depending on the size of the Shetland, you'd maybe put 40, 50 pounds of, of sandbags, and you'd lap that over the horn, and then you'd just get on him. You didn't need any reins because you couldn't control where he was going anyway. You just got on and held on to the horn, and man, would they start bucking. Well, sometimes those things would buck because they didn't have enough sense to balance them forward. You know, they didn't have enough brain to keep them up front, and they'd fall backward. Feet straight up, and you know where you'd be? Right there under that sand, under the neck of that Shetland pony, and he'd be trying to fight to get up, and he'd be mashing you into the soil. Now, let me tell you, I saw guys get their arms broken. I saw them get concussions. I've seen them get black eyes when those horses would throw those heads back. But I'd crawl on and do the same thing the next round. Now, would I want my family to do that? Absolutely not. I look back on that and say, boy, streams of mercy never ceasing. Man, it's a wonder didn't get killed doing that silly stuff. But I'm not the only silly person in this room. There's some other folks in this room did some silly things too. And God got you through that. And you and I at the time probably had no clue. It was God directing and manipulating the circumstances to bring us to a point and a place where we get to hear the gospel and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, God is so kind and so gracious. This song emphasizes this. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Verse 3 says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. That's why you need to be established because you have a tendency to wonder. Wonder. To wonder. Prone to wonder. Oh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That, my friend, is just a real sort of a song reason why we need to be established because one we have not always been as we are now we came into this world lost in fact the matter is me the, the whole idea of being lost was that we were depraved we had a carnal mind and we were enmity against god we were not subject to the laws of god could not be and there was this down pulling dragging force of sin sort of a spiritual gravitational pull that pulled us downward ever ending never ending pulling and and dragging and if you don't get stable in your christian life you'll keep falling 
You'll keep stumbling. You keep troubling on those things. You keep going back to them. And it's only God's Word used by the Holy Spirit that can give a person stability. The more teaching, preaching of God's Word you receive and obedience to it, the more stable you become. Very simple. Quickly, let me close with a service with a couple of passages. This one in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter number 2, Peter writes, he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, 1 Peter 2, as newborn babes desire the sin-sealed milk of the word that we may grow, or ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is uh, contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed." Several things, very quickly. Peter's saying, first of all, there's some things in their life to whom he was writing, these Christian Jews. He was saying there's some things in your life that you need to lay aside. Why? Because they'll make you unstable. There's some things in your life that continually sap your spiritual strength. Things that are sinful, things that are doubtful, things that simply take away from you the confidence that you ought to have in your Christian commitment to Christ. And as that stuff drains you away then you're distracted, you're, you're, insta- you're insecure, unstable, unsure, uncertain. And he is saying, lay these things aside so you can be. Secondly, and I personally believe this, you may not. I personally believe, in fact believe, God will not take away desires from a person that are sinful. I believe we have to act on that. I mean by that, if you sit here this morning and you're fighting some sinful, wicked kind of thing. Let's just say uh, you're shooting drugs. I don't believe that's true of our fellowship, but let's just say you're shooting drugs. And we know that's wrong. It's harmful to the body. It, it simply puts us out of touch with who we are, what we are, and all that. And so we know we got this problem of drugs. And, and you say, Pastor, would you pray for me that God will just take this away from me? My personal response is, I don't believe that's the way God works. You see, I believe you know it's wrong. And I believe you, if you're a Christian, have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And the Word of God has condemned that as sin. I believe it's within us to say no to sin. I believe it is within you. The Holy Spirit is there. The Word of God is here. And I believe it's within you to say, I know this is wrong and I should not do this. It it, it impedes my relationship with the Lord. It destabilizes my Christian walk. I will not do this. And I believe it's within you. I believe the Holy Spirit is there to give you power, strength, and the grace of God to do what you need to do to walk away from those things. I believe there's some of that element in this. In verse 8, even though he's talking about the gospel in the sense of telling the story of Christ and Christ as the Messiah and the Savior and so forth, I believe it also applies to the ideal of interpreting or receiving the Scriptures in whole. In verse 8, you see, he says, a stone of stumbling. He's talking about Christ. A rock of offense, and Christ is that. The more people know about Jesus Christ, the more offensive He is to them if they are not saved. Even to them which stumble at the Word, being disobedient, 
whereunto also they were appointed. Listen to me. I believe there's a sense in which the more you disobey the Scriptures, the more stumbling and in unstable you become. And you know the truth and you know what it says and you keep disobeying it, I believe the more unstable you just keep becoming. And you're not going to get a chance to grow up and mature and be what you ought to be in Christ. And the stumbling is connected to the disobeying. And I believe that's true in the Christian life as well as it is in the sharing of the gospel to bring people to Christ. And I say this to you, it's a, it's the kind of thing that in my heart and in your heart, I believe if we were to tell the truth, we would be honest to say, I know I could quit this if I, if I wanted to. If I really, I know it's wrong, and I believe the Holy Spirit would give me the help I need to quit this. No matter what the sin might be, I believe every believer is equipped to do what they need to do. You say, well, now let me tell you a story, Pastor. Uh, my father, my mother, my sister, my brother, they got saved and they quit every sin just like that. My dad did too. My dad smoked for years, smoked camel cigarettes. Everywhere I turned in our house, there was a pack of camels, pack of camels, pack of camels. Everywhere. Dad bought them and stuck them and everywhere you'd go, there'd be cigarettes in our home. I grew up around them. I smoked one menthol Salem cigarette, swallowed all the smoke, fell off the log I was sitting on, wish I could have died at the moment. Never smoked again. End of subject. Now, I shouldn't have done that one, but I did that one. Tempted by some other guys and so on. But here's the catch. When my father came home one day and said he had trusted Christ as his Savior, my father gathered up all the camel cigarettes and burned them. And my father never smoked another cigarette, and my father said never had a desire to. Now, does God do that? I'm sure he did. Don't have any doubt in my mind that he did that. But the fact of the matter is, what does that have to do with what I'm talking about? Very simply this. The more you yield to the Lord, the more free you'll be of the temptation to sin. It's like looking Christ in the face and continuing to sin is about an impossibility as there is. And the more you yield to Him, the more ground, as it were, your Christian life takes up, the less you leave for the devil to stroke. There are other things I want to share, but let me close with this one thing. Paul was established, and you can't help other people be established until you're established yourself. What's an interesting thing, and in Paul's case here telling that he wanted to get to these people and give them a spiritual gift to the end that they might be established, it's an interesting thing to me that Paul wrote to the Corinthians over there in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. And... Uh, if you know by that time, he's already been persecuted and prosecuted. He's been in jail and prison. He's been beaten with stripes. I mean, this guy's been through a lot. And it's interesting to me that two things came to my mind when I read that. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, and you can read it when you get home, verses 16 through 18. He says, these light afflictions. He says these light afflictions. Wait a minute, don't you understand you've been put in prison? You've been beaten with 40 strikes or 39, 40 minus 1? Don't you understand that they persecuted? Don't you know they've stood up again? I know all that. Let me tell you something. Part of stability is getting a heavenly perspective about everything. The more of heaven's perspective you get while you live here on earth, the more stable you will become as a Christian. When you come to understand heaven does not operate on earth's economy, Heaven does not function on our program, our rules, our laws, etc. God has a whole new set of programs. And when you as a Christian began to look at everything in your life from heaven's perspective, it changed. You remember when Paul and Silas were in prison? 
And these guys were waiting to be persecuted and prosecuted even more fully. You remember what happened? They said they sang songs and praised God. How could you do that? Because you are stable. You have a heavenly perspective. And I'm telling you, that's why Paul then could come here and say to these Romans, I'm coming to give you something that will help you be stable. Stability in the Christian life. If we had more Christians than members of New Life Baptist Church who were stable, you'd see less fabric on pews this morning. We have folks who are out because they're sick. I understand that. We have some folks who are out because they're working. I understand that. We have folks out because they're unstable. And I don't understand that. They need to get stabilized. They need to settle themselves as it were in the scriptures and and park there and camp there and stay there until they sense a stability that no matter which way the winds blow, they won't blow them down. And no matter where the magnetic draw of sin comes from, it won't pull them down. They stand their ground. It's to say that every Christian is important and every single Christian has a place to play, a position to feel, a job to do. That's what it says. And Paul's saying, when I come to Rome and I preach, I want to help you folks find those positions to be stable so you can be the pillars and the ground of truth in that fellowship. I close with an illustration that speaks to my heart about this very thing. Several centuries ago, I'm told in this story, there was a nobleman in a mountain village of Europe. He decided to build a church building. And he was doing this as a legacy to the townspeople who'd been very kind to this man. And during the construction of it, for which he took care of all the costs, made up all the prints, he kept some of the plans secret. And that is that he simply didn't tell them everything about the building. As it were, when they came to this service, which was the dedication service, these people came in and saw this magnificent village church. And they were ooing and aahing. They were amazed and just couldn't believe it. They thought this was the most beautiful thing they'd ever seen in their lives. And he had a service there that day. As the service began and went on for a bit and they began to share testimonies and so forth, a careful observer turned to the man who was at the front of the church with the pastor at that particular moment and he said, I notice we have such a beautiful and grander building, but I notice one thing that is going to hamper our work here. I'd like to ask a question about it. The man who constructed the building and who paid for it said, Sure, what's your question? He said, uh, I notice there are no lights in this building. And I notice there are no windows in it. Could you explain that? He said, yes, I can. Yes, I can. He said it was so built and so designed to emphasize the importance of every family being in every service. And he called to his right and out of a room streamed the young people of the church carrying individual lanterns. And each lantern had a name of a family on it. And they delivered those lanterns to everybody in that room. And there were places on the wall, they were numbered. Places in the middle, they were poles. They could hang them. With every lantern was a name of a family. Every lantern with a name of a family was numbered. And there was a place for every numbered lantern in that building. He said, it's simple. If you don't show up, your section will not have light. And every week you will be the one the people will look to to be sure you're there next week so they can read the scriptures when we turn to the text to preach. I don't know that I've ever heard an illustration that so fulfills the concept that that's really the way it is in the church. We're all in this thing together. 
Our presence here is not just come as you like or as you will or when you want. We're a church. We're a body of believers. And never can we come together and fully function the way we should when part of our body is not present. When your circumstances won't allow, yes, God understands. And we will. But when it's just the whim of the flesh, when it's just the failure of being established, that hurts. That hurts. So if you're established and you can, yes, you ought to be here. If you're not established, then I trust that you shall become so by staying a student of the Word. Our Sunday school, 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Our evening services at 6. And you know our service now, 11 o'clock. 10.30 begins. I hope the Lord will work in your heart to make this the year that you became an established Christian. And I hope this will be the year where you'll be an affectionate Christian. Someone who reaches out and cares for others outside the circle of yourself. And you'll be interested in others, and especially as it comes to praying for them. And that your prayer life may reflect the attitude you have of selflessness. I hope it'll be so. One final word. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, never been a time in your life where anyone took a Bible and opened it and showed you from the Scriptures that you were first lost, a sinner, need of a Savior, then I'm glad you're here this morning. I would be glad too, or one of the men of our church or the ladies of our church would be honored to take you to a side room privately and show you from the Scriptures how you can know for sure Christ is yours and heaven will be. But you must act. It comes to you to act upon what you've heard. We invite you to come. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for every aspect of them, the lessons they teach us, the truths they share with us. And this morning, Father, as we come to close this service and take this invitation, I ask you right here, right now, that you'll work in every one of our hearts. Work in my heart as a preacher of the gospel. Help me, I pray, to be affectionate as I ought. Help me to be caring for not only those of my own household, but those of our church family. And help us to have this affection to such degree that even at my own expense, even as it were of, of, of taxing my own time, that I would reach out to others. Help me to be a selfless believer. And Father, I pray also that you'd help me to have an aim of my Christian walk, to reach out to others, to be a help to them, to help them become stable in their Christian walk. I know I can't stabilize them. Father, that's your work in their hearts using your word. But I can tell the truth. I can preach the truth. I can share the truth. I can do everything in my power to get them in touch with the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit's faithful to then enlighten our minds, to illuminate us. So I pray today, right here, right now, that you'll work in the heart of every person who's heard this message. And I pray for those who are here who've heard it, but their hearts are not in tune with the Father. I pray you'll convict them of their sin. May they come to faith in Christ even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn in your hymn book to page 282, please. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, let me encourage you this morning to come and deal with that which He has addressed. If it's a need of salvation, then we want to help you. If it's as a believer and God has spoken to you about doing business with Him, then you can use the front of the church as an altar and you and God can do, do business here. Whatever the need is, it's time for you to act on what you've heard. Truth will do no good unless it's acted upon. And so our responsibility begins the moment we hear the truth. What are we going to do about it? I urge you this morning to be a doer of the Word, not just to hear, as we sing. Together, 282 verse 1. Sing, please. Just as I am without
one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? You have never trusted Christ as your Savior. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you for your time and thank you for your attention. May the Lord bless you. To be back evening service at 6. Brother Brian Butler will be preaching. Patch the fire to make a presentation. Be delighted if you can come to be with us. I hope you can. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the Sunday school hour and the worship service. Thank you for the time we've had around your word. Thank you for the music we've heard that's encouraged our hearts. And thank you for the truth now that we can take with us. And I pray we would indeed become doers of the word. Pray we would become established believers, stable in the faith. And I pray that you'd use us to help other believers to do the same. Guide us as we go now. Thank you for our friends, our guests who come to be with us this morning. Please bless them and minister to their needs according to your perception of their need. And Father, for those of our membership, we thank you for the faithfulness of our people. Thank you for their love, their prayers. And thank you, Father, for their desire to reach people with the gospel. Help us to be more caring even for one another as we do just that. Bless this afternoon and evening. Give us the rest that we need and prepare us for the message this evening we'll hear, both from the message and the scriptures that Brother Brian will bring to us and also the presentation that Patch Papyrus will pray. Pray you'll bless, direct, give us, I pray, the service that you'd have us to have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.